0: Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfeld, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast, the exciting Parsha podcast. I'm Siltsvi Hirschfeld, and it is my privilege to have my colleague from Pardes and other places in Yerushalayim, Nahama Goldman Barish, to share some Torah insights with us and help us connect really to a book in general, the book of Leviticus, the book of Ayikra. It has so many things like sacrifices and ritual laws, and purity and impurity, that it's sometimes very challenging for the modern reader to connect to. And uh, it's been such a privilege to listen to Pardes' faculty really make it relevant. And I think that that's really important. And so I have complete confidence Nahama is going to do the exact same. So welcome, Nahama
1: Hi, Tzvi. Happy to be here.
0: Terrific. And she's actually sort of smiling, so I think we can agree that she's probably pretty happy to be here. So let's jump in. The opening of the Parsha is very strange. Why does it want to tell us that what's being told now is after the death of the sons of Aaron? Like, why is that some pivotal marker that the Torah wants us to know about?
1: So, I think that's a really good question. And to remind our listeners, the sons of Aaron died in chapter 10. And we're now opening up Acheremot, this week's Parsha, in chapter 16. So, there's really been a break of six chapters between the narrative of the shocking death of Nadav and Aviyu and returning to that narrative here in chapter 16. And what I think is important to recognize is the break in between the telling of the story interjects really important information in the world of tabernacle around the laws of Tuma and Tahara. Now, I know they're often translated as purity and impurity, to be honest, it's not a great translation. Those are the kind of words that are hard to translate accurately. So I'm going to continue using Tuma and Tahara. I will, for those listeners who want a translation, it's often purity, impurity. And really, those are laws that create boundaries, And remind the children of Israel that proximity to the divine presence requires utmost caution and that the tabernacle is not a place you can go to on a whim or when you're subjectively interested in bringing a sacrifice. There needs to be intention. There needs to be awareness of my physical state of being. If I've come into contact with death, if I've encountered a disease termed tzara'at, which again is often translated as leprosy, not a great translation, if I've incurred a form of tum'ah from bodily states like menstruation, childbirth, or seminal emissions, those are all moments of pause. They don't prevent me from bringing a sacrifice eventually, but they remind me that I am in a cyclical relationship with the divine presence in the tabernacle, and there are times that I cannot, not just enter because I feel like I need to bring a sacrifice of gratitude or a sin offering.
0: So let's go back just so we can find the frame a little bit. So the sons of Aaron die, the text back then says, because they brought a strange fire, and it sounds like you're pointing us in the direction of an uncommanded fire, or they somehow entered the Holy of Holies when they shouldn't have. And then we have a pause. We finish that piece of narrative, and then we have these chapters that deal with various states of impurity, and now we're picking up again.
1: Yeah. And to just go back to something you said and sharpen that a little more, my reading of Nadav and Avi who bring this strange fire they were not commanded to bring is not that they did anything morally problematic. In fact, nowhere in the biblical text are they blamed for any transgression, but they deviated. They deviated from the protocol that had been set out in the previous chapters for what the avoda or the sacrificial rites were meant to look like. It seems like they were swept up in a kind of, you know, fervor, ecstatic, spiritual fervor, they bring this fire, and they are immediately struck down by God with a fire, right, with kind of a divine fire. They become sacrifices. And I think their death illuminates the need for God to clarify subjective desire is not going to be relevant in such a divinely mandated space, and there has to be order and protocol. So a lesson in delayed gratification, if you will.
0: So let's talk about that for a minute. If I'm on the out side looking in. What's so terrible about people just going to the Holy of Holies and being close to God? Why don't we encourage that? Why isn't there a big line in the desert of all the Jews waiting to just rush in and have this intense encounter with God? Why should it be limited? Why so many rules, do you think?
1: So I think because God has told us already in Exodus that his presence will reside However we understand that in the tabernacle, there have to be a formality and a protocol in order to create a kind of respectful interaction with the divine. And I would pause and look at, let's say, The Crown, right? that wonderful Netflix series, which is somewhat fictional about the monarchy in England. You don't get to just show up to visit the king and queen. You need to be invited. There's a protocol. You have to dress a certain way. Certain conversations are very much scripted. I feel the world of tabernacle, right, even more so if you're talking about the king of kings, requires this intentionality in order for there to be the grandeur, the respect, the gravitas, that being in relation with an unseen god, in right? an invisible God, a God that is not tangible, and yet we very much believe is there, even more so, the way you're going to enter that space to show that you are in the presence of that kind of divine kingship requires, I think, caution and a very scripted entry.
0: You know, it's interesting. So basically, we're in this tension, or people back then were in the tension, and we can talk if we're still in it. On the one hand, God wants relationship, and God wants to be present among us. On the other hand, God wants to maintain a certain amount of distance. We have to always be aware that God is God and we are we. God's not our next door neighbor or our pal or our spouse, and therefore there's a need for, as you put it, protocol, distance, limits. So us and God, we're in this problematic dynamic where God wants us around, we want God around, but there's something dangerous about the relationship if we break the boundaries. Am I getting you correctly?
1: Yes, absolutely. And one more point I'll add, because I think if we think about relationship, the cyclical aspect, right, a woman who menstruates, eventually her menstrual period will end and then she will be able to bring a sacrifice if she wishes. There's nothing that alienates us for infinite amount of time right it's always finite and i would suggest that it creates a sense of yearning the idea that i know that i have to count 7 days or you know 7 days clean of whatever i'm counting from death impurity and so on means that there's a yearning a sense of i can't always have this kind of close intimacy with the divine presence, and then perhaps it will lead to a sense of yearning for that. It creates, I would say, a specialness, right? I can't have instant gratification. So when I finally achieve that closeness, it's going to mean all the more. So I think there might be something of that as well.
0: So it's not tamay bad tahor good, but in states of tumav impurity, many of them are just a natural result of being human. And so... If I understand you correctly, there is this built-in pausing or a cycle, or all of us are in this state of aspiring to get close to God, having a moment of being close to God, but then retreating somehow all the time. And I want to follow up with something you said just to apply it today. And I'm wondering, I don't know if wacky is the right word, but do you think it's possible today that many groups of Jews on either end of the spectrum have sort of lost the balance, that there are some Jews who want their Judaism and their relationship to God to be constant, intimate, but fundamentally on their terms. And then you have other groups of Jews who are unwilling to think in terms of their own needs or relationship and just focus on the protocol and the demands of fear and respect. What do you think? Am I making enemies of everyone with that one?
1: I think that's a fairly interesting and accurate observation of the spectrum you see of how people relate to religion. The need for the intimate closeness that we talked about can lead to a rejection of halacha or boundaries or anything that seems to restrict that closeness and intimacy. And on the other end, there has definitely been the argument that so much attention to detail, to the small details of halachic practice, eliminates the possibility of having an emotional or intimate experience with the divine. And how do we create a So I think that is a struggle many people who are seeking meaning in religion struggle with. How much is subjective versus objective and what is the balance between the two?
0: You know, It's almost like in Ahrema in the book of Vayikra and Leviticus, we're having Hasidim and Mitnagdim battling it out where the Hasidim want relationship, and they look at the Mitnagdim as cold and focused on the formal, and they're not having their relationship with God at all. And you have the Mitnagdim saying, what, you guys have lost all control, you've lost all sense of respect and protocol, and where's your fear of God? Whereas, I guess we're all wondering, there's the love of God and fear of God, and it feels like what you've described, the text is suggesting we are right in the middle of that tension. And so, how would you characterize the continuation of acharemot with this framing?
1: Okay, so I think Mot opens up again after the death of the two sons of Aaron and begins to describe what the koanim or what the practice within the tabernacle can look like after we've delineated what can't be done. Now it's what can be done. And then we move into the parsha of kedoshim, really the second half of the book, in my opinion, is much more relevant to our lives than the first half of the book. And what is presented is this idea of kedushah, starting with chapter 18. And really, chapter 18 has a very Sinai-like feeling to it. Over and over, this idea of I am the Lord God really repeats throughout chapter 18 into chapter 19, and constant references to to Kedoshim Tihiyu, you shall be holy because God is holy. Again, I'm translating Kedusha as holiness, largely because we need a word in which we can interact with in the English. And really, the argument about what is Kedusha or the discussions about what is Kedusha is very interesting and has a lot of depth to it. But what I want to look at before I pause and we can open up a discussion is chapter 19 really tells us that Kedusha is a covenant with God that is relevant in all of the minutes and days and weeks and months of our lives, separate from Mikdash. In other words, we've talked about Tuma and Tara as the boundaries that limit our entry into the world of tabernacle, of sacrifices, of that kind of intimacy with divine presence. What Kedusha tells me is that I am always able to be in relationship with God, whether it's through Shabbat, whether it's through the agricultural laws, whether it's through honoring my parents, whether it's through the sexual prohibitions, which very much frame chapter 19, chapters 18 and 20, really create a framing of a long list of sexual prohibitions that are meant to remind us that sexuality is central to our behavior as people in covenant to God. And I think that it is important to recognize that whether we have a temple or not, there is an ongoing covenantal relationship that is manifest in multiple myriad moments and actions that we do in everything outside of the world of Tabernacle.
0: So I want to come back. You gave us a lot there, at least for me to sort of process and think about. So first of all, It's a very difficult phrasing. What does it mean that we're commanded to be holy? And what does it mean to say we should be holy because God is holy, especially after this whole context where we just learned about how dangerous it can be to be close to God, how other God is, right? How God has to be treated differently than everybody else. And now we're told, no, no, you can be holy or you should be holy because God is holy, implying we're somehow connected and close and who God is, is in some way who we're supposed to be. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. And in addition, commanded holiness. What does that mean?
1: Okay, so I'll remind you, Tzvi, that you're the philosopher. You teach Jewish philosophy, and a lot of these questions are going to be very relevant. Uh, no name-calling. <laughs> I just teach Talmud and Halakha, you know. The difference, perhaps, I'd like to suggest between the world of Mikdash, the world of tabernacle, and the world outside is the danger in the world of sacrifices is, I think, anthropomorphizing God in the ancient world, the idea of anthropomorphizing the deities, seeing the deities as having some sort of human form. I think a lot of what happens in the Mikdash is meant to both create something physical, right, the bringing of the sacrifices, the blood of the sacrifices, and yet God is very much non-formed. As I said, there's an absence of an image of God in the tabernacle, in the temple. And so I think Kadosh, in many ways, avoid some of that. There is no danger in kedusha because when I keep Shabbat, I'm acknowledging God's presence in the world, but I don't have the danger of anthropomorphizing God by keeping Shabbat or by acknowledging God when I go out to my fields and leave certain parts for the poor. It only reminds me with gratitude, or with the awareness of the giganticness of the divine. There's something inspiring. And so in that relationship, I don't think you have the danger that you have in the world of temple that I think requires much more caution and many more boundaries.
0: In other words, if I understand you correctly, when God is so tangibly present, and I use the word tangible intentionally, you need even more lines and more boundaries because He's so present in your sensory experience, or as God is present in the holiness of time or in the holiness where we treat other people, because God's presence is in certain ways less concentrated, more abstract, it almost means we can even be closer, that we can even be in a certain way, we have a closeness to God available to us in our outside the temple lives than we have inside the temple.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I'm going to say something that now is going to get me into
0: trouble. Oh, good. But I and hopefully think, <laughs> you'll all remember that and not what I said earlier.
1: I think there's almost a relief when the temple is finally destroyed. The end of the second oh, temple period is so corrupted and there has been so much damage to the integrity of what the Mikdash represented. Perhaps relief is a strong word, but the rabbis very quickly pivot to the world of Beit Knesset, of Beit Midrash, right? Remember, we call the temple Beit Mikdash, the house of Mikdash, the house of the temple, if you will, the house of holiness. And then a lot of work goes into, even before it's destroyed, but certainly after, the idea that we can create intimacy with God In essentially a parallel line, like in the temple, through prayer and study. And that does a lot to eliminate hierarchy, right? We don't need the priests anymore. We don't need the tangible sacrifices. And yet, the world of Torah study, the world of prayer, allows us to continue intimate relationship without the physicality of the temple and the sacrifices. And there's a lot of meaning to be plumbed from those institutions that really even before the temple is destroyed, are already being set up and almost immediately replace it. And so we're going to spend 2,000 years mourning the loss of temple and at the same time, very comfortable in the Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai model of give me Yavne. Yavne has within it the idea of bonev, building, right? Where he says to Vespasian, give me Yavne, where we can learn Torah, we can pray, and we can do mitzvot of the Torah, very much reminding us that the temple was only one very particular way of interacting with God. And there's this enormous platform or palette of mitzvot that are still very resonant and available to us. And I think that's the Kedoshim Tiyu. I think that's the second half of achrei mot. They're often read together. Are they always read together, Tzvi?
0: I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah.
1: So whether they're always read together or not, there's a yin and yang there, right? Very much the world of the priests and the temple, and then pivoting to a world that is about all of us, whether we have access to the temple or not.
0: So, wow, you offered a lot there. I don't think anything was overly heretical, but we'll see what happens. Well, Pardes, we're very open at the Pardes podcast. (laughs) We welcome all flavors. So basically what you're arguing is, I think, that we're supposed to have the holiness of tabernacle and temple, and we're supposed to have the holiness of our day-to-day lives outside. And what you're suggesting is we couldn't manage that. The experience somehow of having Mikdash maybe even interfered with our ability to create holiness outside. And the sages, I think, developed ways and means to create constant holiness, whether it's the constant saying of blessings and all the blessings before food and the blessings of what you see and prayer and Torah study and chesed, I want to add, right, that they created systems of finding holiness outside. But maybe with the ultimate hope that we're going to figure out how to integrate that it does lean me into the direction of the Jewish people now having a land and a state and asking some of those same questions where some would argue that we're better off without land and state because we really know how to do that Bay Knesset thing and all those other wonderful institutions that the sages built. And maybe we're still struggling to figure out how to build holiness in those tangible ways of society and politics and land. What do you think about that?
1: So I want to go back to something you said earlier, and then I'll comment on what you said, which I think is very relevant to where we are right now in the state of Israel. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, when he's leaving Jerusalem, is asked by his student, Rabbi Yoshua, where is atonement going to come from now that the temple is destroyed? And of course, Mot is about atonement. It's about the Yom Kippur service and the fact that the high priest achieves atonement for the people through this very, very scripted service that takes place with multiple sacrifices and changes of clothing and so on. It's very grand, the grandeur of the Yom Kippur service. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, without pause, without hesitating, turns to him and says, is acts of kindness to one another, acts of chesed, that will be where the atonement is. And he says to Rabbi Oshua, God does not desire empty sacrifices, sacrifices empty of any sort of depth or meaning. God desires kindness, chesed, acts of chesed. And so that really speaks to where you were going, right? The idea that the temple had become an empty vehicle or an empty vessel for bringing God's light into the world or divine inspiration. And Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai says, you really want to find it, the real place you'll find it is in the way we treat one another, in the Acts of Chesed. To speak to your second question, I just want to say for those who are going to listen to this, perhaps in years ahead, we're right now in the end of March, beginning of April 2023. And it is definitely a time in which a lot of these questions are being asked regarding sovereignty and the land and the state and religion and the place of religion in land and state and religious institutions in a democracy. You know, there are not easy... Answers. I think we have opportunity here to practice Judaism in a way that it has not been practiced in 2,000 years, whether it's with regard to the land and the laws of the land. Really, a beautiful example is farmers who have started keeping Shemitah with great difficulty for the first time in 2,000 years, trying out a mitzvah that has kind of laid dormant for 2,000 years. On the other hand, there's no question that the power dynamics that happen when we have religious politicians or religious people in government and what that leads to is complicated and at times concerning. And so there's definitely opportunity for us to think and rethink and do this well. And at the same time, the kind of challenges that I feel faced the rabbinic leadership at the end of the Second Temple, to be quite honest.
0: Except maybe in reverse, right? They had to deal with destruction and dispersion, and now we have to deal with with building and regathering, but some of the same tensions are still there. I just wanna share one more insight with you that you sparked when you spoke about how the holiness that we experience in 18 and 19 in our relationships with others, and it's very interesting, a lot of these rules are also about boundaries and leaving space for the other, recognizing that I'm not the poor person, the poor person is not here to serve me. He's a separate person who needs to be cared for. And of course, all the way to our most intimate relationships, that other people are not there for my use or only for my welfare to have my subjective, wonderful experience of intimacy and pleasure, but there's an other there. And making space for the other happens through boundaries. And so it's interesting that the same need for boundaries in our relationship with God, I guess you could argue, is also necessary in our relationships with other people.
1: Yeah, and that really brings me to Rashi at the beginning of chapter 18. When he defines Kedusha, he really says the sum total of Kedusha is to be found in sexual boundaries, which leads Nachmanides to argue that that is way too restrictive a definition. But I want to pause to say that it's in the sexual relationships that really there can be power dynamics, something you said, the subjective use of another for my own needs, for my own pleasure. And perhaps that's what Rashi is getting at. If you can create healthy moral sexual boundaries in your society, then everything is going to ripple outwards towards more awareness about what it means to be me in relationship to someone else. And I will say chapter 18 brings us a long list of do nots. Do not have sexual relations with a sibling, with another man's wife, right? And so on. But there's one relationship on that list that's a permitted relationship. Do not have sexual relations with the nida, with the woman who's menstruant, but That essentially means when she's not Nida then you are permitted to have sexual relations. So what we have on the list is prohibition, but within the prohibition, boundaries within a permitted sexual relationship, which perhaps does foster exactly what you were saying, Svi, that even in permitted relationships, the boundaries are meant to remind us that it's not only about our own instant gratification. Each person in the relationship can use this kind of non-sexual time to think about the meaning of the intimacy in their relationship and how to incorporate Perhaps in a healthier way, the cyclical nature of the sexuality perhaps is meant to create a sense of yearning and also a sense of awareness that there's someone else in the relationship.
0: And really, maybe even all relationships, even non-sexual relationships, this idea of both closeness and giving space and how we're always in that dynamic uh, again, the same problem, too much closeness and boundaries are lost, appreciation of the other is lost, and I start to see the other person as an extension of myself, and too much distance, and the person's not there. You don't feel them present, they don't feel you present, and suddenly there's real separation. So we're always in that dance in a way, which I think uh, you illustrate here very beautifully, both in the divine human relationship and our relationships with each other. Do have anything you want to send us off with, a hope or a prayer, a wish... A thought.
1: Yeah, I think my hope and prayer is that the concept of kedusha, which is really about finding spaces in our lives to allow the divine in, the divine presence, the divine light, will really illuminate ours. I'm going to use Rabbi Yochan and Ben Zakkai, The idea of kedusha, both for myself, and then I'm going to tie it to the idea that we're all created b'tzalel Elohim. So the opportunity for intimacy with the divine is not just outward. It's not just in my Shabbat and not just in my field. It's really within myself. And if I can honestly see that in other people right, if I can see it in every person, because the divine image is universal, it's not particular to the Jewish people, it's everyone, then perhaps my hope for humanity is, right, that if we all recognize there's a universal connection, that every person is able to illuminate some of the divine light into the world, then perhaps that's the ideal manifestation of kedusha. in that my behavior, both with myself in my spaces and with others, is all connecting, to this ripple effect of bringing the divine light into the world in the way that perhaps it was meant to when God's presence rested in the tabernacle.
0: It's beautiful. You know, there's a Midrash that asks, where is the Kedushah of Shabbat found, the holiness of Sabbath found? They give various answers, but one answer there is in the face of the other. Oh, my God. I know. It's a great one. Everyone loves that one. And I think you just said it very beautifully also, to look for Kedushah and to foster Kedushah and kedoshim to you to be holy is really a central aspiration to what we're trying to be as Jews and human beings. So, Kola Kavod thank you very, very much. Really appreciate your time and your wisdom.
1: You're welcome, Tzvi. It was a pleasure.
0: And I want to wish all of you out there a Shabbat Shalom and uh, continue listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.